you're listening to the Pomerado Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you're a weekly listener, welcome back. If this is your first time, we're so glad you're here and hope you consider subscribing. If you're in your car, on a run, doing things around the house, or working out, and want to connect even further and take next steps with us, visit pomerado.info. Now, enjoy this week's message. All right. Well, welcome, everybody. It's good to see all of you who are here with us in person. want to welcome those of you who are joining us online live and also those of you who might be watching or listening later throughout the week. Uh, As Trevor mentioned, we are um, in a series called The Armor of God, and we're talking about the helmet of salvation this morning. And so as we've been talking over the past several weeks, the reminder of the fact that Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 points us to the idea that we need to be strong and stand firm, not in our own might, in our own strength, But in God's strength, we need to recognize that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We remember that the devil has schemes. He is planning and methodically thinking through how to attack or come after each and every one of us. And so because of all of that, we cannot fight this battle on our own. We cannot try to stand up against those schemes on our own. And so what we need to do is remember to take up the various pieces of the armor. And so we've talked about having your loins girded with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with a readiness or the firm footing of the gospel of peace, and then taking up the shield of faith And then today we'll hit on the helmet of salvation. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1 for the majority of our time together. But before we do, the... Um, I wanted to share a story. I think I've shared it before, but when I was um, probably 11-ish, maybe 10, 11 or so, um, I would be on my bike a lot, riding my bike to my friends' houses um, all over the place. And so there's something where it's just, it's crazy to me because uh, Shaylin, our oldest, is 11. I'm like, I wouldn't even think about doing that right now. But back then, it was a a different time. And so I would ride my bike to my friend's house. And I remember I would have a helmet that I would wore, but uh, I actually was able to find a picture that's very similar to this helmet. Because I was 10, 11, because I was insecure, uh, because I just struggled um, wanting to look cool, I sometimes had this helmet but would refuse to wear this helmet. Because while the purple and pink is a pretty combination, as a 10-year-old boy hanging out with my friends, I didn't always love that combination. And so one day I was riding my bike, and instead of wearing my helmet as I ought to have done, I... Would I had it just kind of hanging from uh, the handlebars. And this was, again, I was young enough that I remember specifically, this bike was one of the ones where it wasn't a handbrake. It was the one where you kind of had to like push back on the pedals with your legs in order to stop. And so I remember it specifically because as I'm riding, I was like in the street, you know, on the, on, on the right-hand side, and there was uh, a parked car. And as I was trying to put the brakes back, um, the helmet that was hanging there stopped me from getting the right, um, the right uh, position and the right force. And I remember I hit the back of the parked car. And it's one of those where you just like, it's very embarrassing. The, the owner of the car came out from her house and, you know, asked me for my name and my phone number. And so I gave it to her and I'm riding back with my helmet on uh, back to the house with shame. And I remember my mom was just like, you know, so how, you know, how's your day? I'm like, oh, I, I ran into this car. I wasn't with my helmet, all this stuff. And she's like, I'm glad you told me because that neighbor called me and I wanted to see if you would. So I'm like, I love passing tests you don't know are coming. And so, but I still had to confess that I didn't wear that. Now, my, my story of not wearing a helmet is, is lighthearted. It, it, there wasn't a lot of damage. There wasn't a lot of issues. But we know, 
We either know of people or we know and love people who, by not wearing a helmet, they have had various injuries or, or things that have changed the course of their lives. And so it's recognizing that while my story might be a little bit more lighthearted about not wearing the helmet, the, the idea of wearing a helmet is so vitally important to protect our head, to protect our brain. And then in a spiritual sense, it's to protect our minds and our thoughts from the onslaughts of the enemy. Because many of us, if I, if I were to guess, there are probably many of us, whether in this room or joining us online, that we are riding through life with the helmet of salvation near us, but it's hanging on the handlebars and we're not putting it on properly. So when we face trials, not if, when we face temptations, not if, when we are struggling, not if, we wonder why things aren't working out, whereas by not putting it on, not only is it actively putting us in danger because we're not wearing the helmet, but we also might run into things that are causing life-altering damage in our lives. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to ask a few questions through the armor of God, specifically the helmet of salvation. What is salvation? How do we define it? What is it? Why is it that Paul calls it a helmet? Where does that come from? How does Satan like to attack our minds? We're going to take a little bit of time there. There's a lot more to it, but we'll take a little time. And then lastly, how do we take up or how do we put on, how do we receive the helmet of salvation? So that's where we're going. Um, I hope that um, you all know that you were prayed for, cared for, and loved before you showed up or turned on the screen. So let's see what God has for us as we pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person who's part of our service, whether live in person, live online, watching or listening later. Lord, I thank you that you've created and shaped and formed each and every person here. You breathe life into us, that you brought us all here this morning to hear what you have for us, to learn to have our eyes and our ears and our hearts open to what you would want to give us this morning. So I pray, Lord, that as we dive into your word, that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us as we go through your word together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As I mentioned, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1. I, I want to give you a heads up early on. We're going to look at a larger chunk of scripture. And if you know, often what I'll do is I'll take passages and we'll kind of go through a little bit more slowly. This one, it's in, intentionally a lot of scripture because the idea is to get the big picture of all the things mentioned rather than unpacking what each one of those mean. Um, and so we're going to take a, a, some time together looking at a large section um, without going necessarily verse by verse, but reading those verses together. And so the first question that we have here is what is salvation? How do we define that? If I were to you know, if we were in, in a small group or if we were um, in, in, a, in a conversation, if I were to ask, hey, what, what does salvation mean to you? Most of us would probably refer to, if we have a relationship with Jesus, if, if you're um, not on that journey with God yet, we're so glad you're here. And so you may not have an answer for that yet. And that's okay. We're glad that you're part of our time together this morning. But what we do is when we think of salvation, we will often go to the time where we surrendered our lives to Jesus, to that moment where we were justified. And by justified, I mean we were made right because all of our sins, we confessed our sins and we believe that Jesus is Lord. And we believe it in our hearts, we confess it with our mouths and we are saved. So we go back and we think of that past event. And maybe for some of you, if you grew up in the church, you don't have like a, for me, it's September 20th, 2003. Maybe for you, it wasn't like, you know, a specific date. Maybe it's more the idea of, I remember in the summer before my eighth grade year, that's when God became real to me. You may not have a date, you may have a season or whatever it is for you. But 
With that said, it's, we often will think of salvation as a past event where we gave our lives to Jesus. And that is a vital part of it. But it's not the only part of it. That is a vital part of it. It's not the only part of it. Here's what Joel T. Hemi says when he's uh, defining salvation in the Lexham Theological Word Book. He says, salvation is the rescue from a state of danger. That's what we're talking about there. And restoration to wholeness and prosperity. In the Bible, people are saved from foreign nations, from enemies, and from the penalty of sin. But salvation also entails health, wholeness, and victory. So to give an example of it, I remember in 2015 when I had stood on the scale and it was the heaviest I'd ever been and being so discouraged by that. And so, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this seriously. And over the course of, I think it was seven months, I ended up losing, I think it was like 42 pounds or something. Thank you, but it's all come back. And so here's, here's the thing. That's why I don't do like a profile when I preach. Anyway, sorry. Um, but it is that idea of, I remember having that moment where I was like, yes, I did it. And it was that time where I could look at November of 2015. I felt healthier than I had. I felt like I just was more confident because I, lo- you know, all those things. Even now, I'll look at pictures from then. I'm like, oh, what once was. And so there are these moments where I can think back about it. And so salvation can be the idea that we have a moment, right? A season where things were, you know, we, we came to know Jesus. But salvation is also the being restored and in order so that we may have eternal life and be the life that God has called us to, the kind of life that allows us to have um, wholeness, what, what the Jewish culture, what Hebrews would call shalom, the idea of this, things are well with my soul. And so for me, yes, I had that moment in November 2015, but over time, if when I don't stop urges to eat food or when I walk by and I see like free food in a Bible study on Wednesday mornings hypothetically and I just walk by and I look I'm like oh it's there and I'll eat it's one of those where if you don't change the patterns if you don't change the way we think I remember thinking hearing that food should be considered fuel not fun I always look at food as being fun and so I think what sounds fun for me to eat not what's the best fuel for my body. So it's acknowledging that, yes, I had a moment where I was healthy, but the whole process of continually choosing health and victory and wholeness has been lost. In the same way that the Bible says you are saved from sin. You are saved and rescued from death. But it also entails being restored to life. The life that we are continuously being made and remade and shaped into Christ-likeness. The kind of life where the Holy Spirit makes us and cuts away at our sins, at our struggles, at our issues, at our dynamics that take us away from becoming more like Jesus. That it's this idea of justification, made right from God when we confess our sins. And he is righteous and just, we confess our, our faith in him. And then also sanctification, in which we continuously become more like Christ throughout our time on earth. So salvation has to be a both and. Because if we just think it's this, that we might be the kind of people who say, oh, I came to know Jesus, but no one would know because no one would see the fruit in our lives. We would say, I follow Jesus, but they look around and it would look like there's bad fruit. And as Jesus warned us in Matthew 7, there are times when people say, Lord, Lord, did I not do all these great things for you? And he says, away from me, I never knew you. So we have to recognize it's not just about what time I prayed. It's 
is Jesus continuously the forefront of our lives? And is the Holy Spirit continuously shaping us and molding us into Christ-likeness? Salvation entails both being rescued from death and restored to life. So let's look at the first point. In Christ, we have been rescued from death. I'm going to read along Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, all the way through verse 10. You're going to see some words highlighted. Um, Even if we don't spend a lot of moments on those, I want you to start thinking. These are all the spiritual blessings. Not all of them, I shouldn't say. This is a lot of the spiritual blessings that Paul says that we receive when we follow Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So he's given us every. Here's just a list of a few. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. That we are no longer orphans or separated from a loving father. We have been co- we are now heirs with of God and co-heirs with Christ. We could call upon rightly and say, Abba, Father, and we are able to do that. We have a spirit of sonship now that we can claim 1 John 3, 1, the idea that says how deep the love the Father has lavished upon us that we might be called children of God and that is what you are. We have been adopted into sonship through Jesus Christ. Now, let's see. Sorry, I got so excited. I lost my place real quick. Okay. In accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he, freely give, which he has freely given us to the one he loves. In him, we have redemption. Our sins have been paid for. And we recognize that it says Jesus paid it all when we confess our sins. He is righteous and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we have redemption through the blood. We have forgiveness of our sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. I love that word. But recognize that this, this, uh, these riches are not financial, right? Like there are things that are worth far more than money. There is peace and there is hope. There is salvation. There is a new life in Christ that we are not going to take our money with us when we go to heaven. We're not going to need it. We're not going to have riches as the way the world defines it or an inheritance as the world defines it because we're already going to have inherited this relationship with Jesus, with God through Jesus. And so it's recognizing that these riches, we have to get out of the mindset that riches equals money or possessions. Riches equals something far more than money, and it's how Jesus has possessed our hearts when we surrender to him. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed us, we all have a purpose in Christ, to be put into the effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. These are just a list of some of the blessings, but take hold of what this means. In order for us to have sonship, in order for us to have redemption, in order for us to have forgiveness, in order for us to have wisdom, in order for us to have unity, if we understand that to be true, but we don't live in the light of that, it's like riding our bikes with salvation as a helmet hanging and we're not actually putting it on and taking it up and receiving it in the way that we are called to do. It's like having what we need in difficult trials and then forsaking and forgetting that we have it. It's like not acknowledging the beautiful gifts and blessings that we've received and then getting mad at the giver and say, why didn't you give it to us? And he says, I already have. 
but you need to put it on. You need to remember it's being rescued from death. There's forgiveness and redemption. That is a moment that has happened or a time or a season where that's happened. But that's not all salvation is. It also entails the reminder that in Christ, we are being restored to life. We've been made whole. Again, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to bring dead people back to life. And I wish I knew who quoted that first, but it's one that I've heard so often that it's just part of, it's just so important and special. So let's continue on as we read through, um, starting back up in verse 11, as we continue through it. Again, you'll see some more words. In him, in Christ, we were also chosen. He's mentioned that again. Having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose, there's that word purpose again, of his will. In order that we, who are the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. This idea of putting our hope in Christ is, is not hoping that, you know, I make it to the airport in time later today. It's not hoping that I get to have pizza at some point in the next couple of days. It's not hoping that everything's fine. It's not just this wishful thinking, but biblical hope being a prayerful trusting, biblical hope being a faithful clinging in the midst of the storms to the anchor of our souls, who is Jesus. It's this hope, and we're gonna, I want you to put a pin in the idea of hope and salvation connected together because we will circle back to it later on in the sermon, but it's mentioning that for those of us who have put our hope in Christ, that we might be for the praise of his glory, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So the word salvation in Ephesians, this is the only time it's used, specifically that word, but last week when we read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, so it's the next passage right after this, kind of going backwards through Ephesians right now, um, he talks about it's by grace you've been saved. So the word saved is used a few more times. Salvation is only used here. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. That faith comes and then you believe who Jesus, Jesus is, who he says he is, and you confess that faith. The Holy Spirit has sealed you, and it's a deposit. He is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So there's a lot here, but the reminder of it is for the fact that the gospel of salvation was not just you save and then you're saved, from, rescued from death, and then you're dead and everything's fine. Like you just, you don't die right in the moment of salvation. That you are restored to life or called to be restored to life because the promised Holy Spirit has sealed us. He's made his mark on our lives. He resides within our souls. And there could be no harmony between Christ and Belial, as 2 Corinthians 6 says. There can be no harmony between light and darkness. The Holy Spirit needs to go in to every room of our soul and figure out the ways in which we are not Christ-like. And he will remove that. And sometimes when our idols and our secrets and our difficulties are removed, it can be painful. But there's two different types of pain I heard recently. There's the pain of discipline. Then there's the pain of regret. And it's hard to be disciplined. But it's often more long-lasting pain if, we don't be dis if we're not disciplined and we give in to the pain of regret. So we've been rescued from death. We're called to be restored to life through the power of the Holy Spirit. That the idea of how God will just chip away at the things in our lives that don't look like Christ. 
and he'll just keep working until we reflect his image. So then we have to ask this next question. We ask, what is salvation? Why does Paul refer to salvation as a helmet? What, what, why is that the piece of armor that he refers to? Priscilla Shire explains the, the Roman soldier's helmet a little bit here. She says this, a Roman soldier's helmet was basically a skull cap made of iron, then typically covered with bronze. Then she continues, over time, the soldier's helmet was redesigned to be even more comprehensive in its coverage. Pieces were added, including a flared neck guard and hinged cheek guard. It protected not only the head, but also the neck and the shoulders. Here's a picture of it, um, of what it would look like with the, sh- the um, chin guard, or the cheek guard, excuse me, and then the flared neck at the back. And she talks about how the main, um, the main uh, weapon that this would have to fight up against would be a broadsword that was three to four feet in length, needed to be gripped with two hands, so this is not, this is not like... Um, uh, like the sword of the spear is like a, a, a smaller sword, like a gladius sword. It's not that type of sword. It's, it's a bigger broad, broad sword, excuse me. And so the idea was like that sword was so strong, this broad sword, that a correct hit or a square hit would crush a soldier's skull. So they needed to have that helmet on with iron and bronze to protect the neck, protect the cheeks, so that the only things that were really um, accessible or visible were the eyes to see where the battle was and the ears to hear the commandments or the command of the commander. So let's go back to Ephesians 6.17. We've talked about the different pieces of armor. Here he says this, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And we'll discuss, we'll, we'll hit on the, the um, word of God, the sword of the spirit next week. But just this idea for the helmet of salvation, this word take in verses 13 and 16, we'll talk about, you know, take up the shield of faith or take up the armor of God and stand firm. But as Marvin Vincent tells us, this idea for take is a different word from that which is used in verses 13 and 16. It is receive as from God. The meaning is to receive the helmet which is salvation. That the helmet of salvation is not a nice um, uh, accessory to have. This is vital for who we are. It is vital for us to remember that when it comes to salvation, as we talked about last week, this is something that we, it is by grace through faith that you are saved, not by works so that no one can boast. What does that remind us of? That we cannot do anything to earn our salvation. This word take specifically refers to receiving from someone. And so the idea is that we have to receive the salvation. We cannot earn it. We cannot forge our own helmet. We cannot create our own salvation. We have to receive that which has been given to us. Remember talking about the inheritance in Ephesians 1. This is part of that idea of inheritance that we receive from our Father. The armor that is his in the helmet of salvation is a vital, vital part of it. 2018, in the spring, um, I, we moved down here uh, February 16th of 2018, and then we, uh, I started working on the 26th, and then a few months down the road, uh, Pastor Evan and I, we would uh, rotate preaching, and then there's one sermon um, when it was the day that he was retiring that we both preached a little bit. He preached the first half, I preached the second half, and there's this very meaningful moment in that service that um, if you were here, you may remember, and if you weren't, I want to share it with you. So um, this is a beautiful picture of, of a Bible and a baton, and in case you can't see that baton purely, or, uh, clearly, uh, it's this baton that says, Pastor J.P. Chafaris, run the race, Hebrews 12.1. 
And in the service, as he was talking, and, and then there was this moment in the sermon where, if we go to the next slide, there was a time where he actually literally handed the baton to me as going from senior pastor for 29 years at our church and 11 years prior to that on staff, so 40 years, and then he handed me the baton. And it was this beautiful moment. I love, real quick, uh, I love the fact that I'm so bright-eyed and bushy-tailed back then. I was like, oh, it's pre-pandemic, like there were no issues, but just recognizing how much things have changed. But what I love is this moment of receiving from Pastor Evan the baton that symbolized having the honor to be the senior pastor here at Palmerado Christian Church. That word, that idea is more akin to what it means to receive the helmet of salvation. I can say I can take up my water bottle and I can drink it. That would be like taking up the shield of faith or taking up the armor. But receiving the helmet of salvation that's the picture of someone giving you something and then you receive it and you live in the light of what you have received. So it's this beautiful picture that Paul talks about of receiving the helmet of salvation because we can't earn it. We, this, this imagery, if this sounds familiar of the helmet of salvation, we saw it in 1 Thessalonians, or we'll see it in 1 Thessalonians 5, but we also see it here in Isaiah 59. So Paul is pulling from a passage that's in Isaiah, prophecies, that is pulling from what the Messiah, what, what God's own armor is. And he said he put righteousness on as his breastplate. We talked about this a few weeks ago and used this verse. But we also said, and then the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. So this is an Old Testament, messianic, biblical imagery that Paul was attributing to us to say we need to put on this Helmet. We need to recognize that the salvation we have is rescue from death to sin or death because of our sin, and it's rescue to new life in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. We are new creations, and we need to remind ourselves that all the time so that when the enemy attacks, we are best prepared to fight back. So, how does Satan, how does the enemy attack our minds? How does Satan attack our minds? We've talked about this, uh, we've used this list uh, roughly over the past several weeks. Uh, somehow we're already on the fifth week here and talking about how there's these different schemes, looking at uh, verse 11 of Ephesians 6. And these aren't the only schemes, but uh, Warren Wearsby wrote these down and what, the, what to wear at the war. Um, and I've rearranged some of them and added a couple. But he specifically talks about discouragement. And the antidote for discouragement is salvation, of reminding ourselves of the hope of salvation. Here's how Paul writes it in 1 Thessalonians 5. But since we belong to the day as opposed to the night, as opposed to living according to darkness, we live according to the light of Christ. We belong to the day. Let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation, receive, not earn, not make our own, receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what Warren Wearsby says about discouragement and about the enemy. He says, besides throwing doubt, doubt, excuse me, doubts at us, Satan likes to discourage us. He's the great discourager. He assails us with setbacks and frustrations until we are ready to quit. Satan knows that when a soldier loses hope, he has lost the battle. Some of us, we have these thoughts that come to mind. We, we have these thoughts that are invasive, that they come and, and we don't even know where they come from. But there are these lies from the enemy's tongue 
that when the enemy speaks, lying is his native tongue. And so there's lies where it says things like, you're not lovable. You're not valuable. You need to do more, earn more, be more. No one likes you. No one cares that you're here. God made a mistake on you. God could never love you. And these are utter, complete, absolute lies. But the enemy loves to discourage us because if we let those lies into our hearts and into our minds, we're going to learn that our mind controls what we think and how our brain works, which controls how we live. And so if we allow these thoughts to reign rampant in our lives unchecked, it's like having a moment where we don't put on the helmet of salvation. It's on the side of our handlebars and we crash and it has life-altering circumstances and consequences for us. It reminds me of when I share about people what depression was like when I was depressed and suicidal when I was younger. I share a story from, or an image, an illustration from the movie The Incredibles. I've shared it before, but I'm sharing it again because it, it aptly points this out. That when Mr. Incredible is at the, the bad guy's base and he goes and he's trying to find out what the plan is. And because all bad guys have to have like super easy passwords, it's like the third thing he tries. And then he's able to see the whole plan that's laid out so perfectly because that's what the script calls for. And, and all of a sudden, he, his wife is wondering where he is, pushes a, a GPS tracker on his suit. His suit starts beeping. And all of a sudden, in that room where he's learning the bad guy's plans, all the lights turn on. It's a fully white room and these cannons line the sides of the room. Now he's on this platform where he just has like one exit out, just one narrow path that he has to get out in order to be rescued. And so the first thing happens, the cannon comes and it shoots him, but it's not like a cannonball that explodes. It's this black sticky thing and he looks at it and as it comes, it starts to grow and he tries to shake it off. It doesn't shake off, it grows. And then he gets shot here and he starts to realize it's starting to grow and he gets shot here and he starts to see it's starting to grow. And he realizes that I can't shake this. He realizes I need to get to my exits before it's too much. And so he starts running and all the cannons start blasting and everything's coming at him. And it's this thought and this and this and this. And it keeps growing and expanding. And all of a sudden he's weighed down by all of these thoughts or excuse me, all of these cannons that all of a sudden he falls to his knees. He can't get up anymore. And then everything just fades to black. I use this picture because when I was experiencing depression and being suicidal, there were these thoughts that would come after and they would say, you're not lovable. You have no value. God can't love you. You're not good enough. You have to be better, do better. Whatever those things are, whatever they are, if left unchecked, they stick to us. No matter how hard we try to just shake it off with our own willpower, it continues to grow. And no matter how much we try to escape, the weight of the attacks on our thoughts can weigh us down. Until if we're not careful, we get so overwhelmed with depression that everything feels like it fades to black. So the enemy wants to take away our hope. Because hope allows us to withstand difficult times. But if he can discourage us enough to lose all hope, as it says here, he knows that when a soldier loses hope, he's lost the battle. Matthew Henry, when he talks about the importance of the helmet of salvation, says this. The helmet secures the head. A good hope of salvation, well-founded and well-built, 
will both purify the soul and keep it from being defiled by Satan. And it will comfort the soul and keep it from being troubled and tormented by Satan. He would tempt us to despair, but good hope keeps us trusting in God and rejoicing in him. We need the helmet of salvation to guard our thoughts against the discouragement and the hopelessness that comes. When left unchecked, we allow the enemy's thoughts to come after us. So now, let's, let's ask another question. How do we take the helmet of salvation? How do we receive it? How do we put it on? What does it look like for us? 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5, Paul talks about this warfare that we have. It says, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. You don't fight spiritual forces of evil with an actual sword, with an actual um, spear, things like that. The world, on the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Strongholds is a fancy word or, or an old-timey word that talks about an enemy fortification. The idea that if they're trying to, if people try to attack a city, that they would look for the place that was fortified, they would know where it is, and if they destroyed that stronghold, the city would be theirs. And so what happens here is that Paul is pointing us to the fact that in the spiritual battle, every time we allow an unchecked thought or a thought that um, would destroy us and it sticks to us and we try to shake it off, if we don't renew our minds, if we don't refresh our perspective, if we don't reframe what's going on, if we don't take that thought captive and we let it just grow, it's going to be to our own detriment. It's going to be to our own hopelessness because we're going to be filled with discouragement. So every time we allow that thought to happen, it's like we're building the enemy's strongholds on our ground and in our lives. So just as it takes months to gain weight and it takes months to lose it, it may have taken years for us to start to realize the strongholds the enemy has. And it may take years. One brick one brokenness, one negative thought, one heartache, one moment of discouragement at a time. But it's de demolishing strongholds and demolishing arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God when we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We take every thought and make it captive and obedient to Christ. There's a book by Craig Rochelle called Winning the War of Your Mind, or In Your Mind, excuse me. And the subtitle is Change Your Thinking, Change Your Life. The mindset here is that we will go, our lives will go the direction of our thinking. That's not the exact quote he has. He has a quote similar to it, but I forgot to put it in. So it's along those lines that what we think of will dictate how we are. An example of this would be when you go to the grocery store and you're not hungry when you show up, but then you get there and you're like, now I want all the things. Because you start to think, now I'm hungry. And your brain starts to think, well, that looks good. And if that looks good, therefore, I must be hungry. Therefore, I found my second stomach to be able to fill stuff today. But it's this idea that our minds can control what it is. And like physiologically, things that can happen in our bodies. So how do we make every thought captive? Craig Rochelle makes this list here, and it's, it's kind of the premise throughout his book as he talks through four different steps, four different ways and principles, rather, not steps, but principles we ought to take hold of in order to take a thought captive and then move it away from us if it's not from the Lord. The first one is the replacement principle. Remove the lies, replace with truth, he says. Remove the lies, replace with truth. So those moments when you think, 
No, I am unlovable. God can never love me. He said, wait, is that, is that a truth in God's word? Or is that something that I'm allowing the enemy to say that's going to stick on me and I can't shake it off? Because if it's from God's word, if that, what God's word tells me is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Well, that tells me that God loves the world. But even more specifically, we quoted it earlier, how deep the Father's love that he has lavished upon us, that we might be called children of God, and that is what we are. It's recognizing that there are scriptures, there are truths that would counteract the lies that we hear. So when you have a thought that comes in, and sometimes it's a thought, you know, we don't control when the thoughts come in, but we control whether we give in to them or we don't. And so when a thought comes in, some things that sometimes what I'll do is, is something where it's like, if it's not a thought that is from God's word and from the Holy Spirit, and I say, this thought is not from the Lord, and it's not from me and my redeemed sonship in Christ. So it's either of my flesh or if it's from the enemy. So we can start getting in the habit when these thoughts come up. If it's like that, it's not from the Lord, and it's from the enemy or from the flesh. We say, I banish those thoughts and the enemy that brings them in the name of Jesus Christ. Just close it off and say, no, get out of here. Replace it then with truth. I'm not unlovable. God has showed me and told me how much he loves me. Number two, the rewire principle. Rewire your brain, renew your mind. Now this is too, uh, I was about to say too heady, which is an awful pun, but I was going to go with it anyways. This is too heady for me because I don't understand all this on my own. But Dr. Carolyn Leaf is a Christ follower who's also a neuroscientist. And she's done studies on the brain. She has books called Switch On Your Brain and a couple other books. Um, I forget the title of right now. But her whole idea is this idea of neuroplasticity. So neuro, talking about the brain, plasticity is the idea that our brains don't have to be fixed in the same paths at all times. That we can change or alter our ways of thinking. We can change or alter our ways of living. And so she has this quotation that talks about the way the brain changes as a result of mental activity is scientifically called neuroplasticity and spiritually it is the renewing of the mind it's recognized that what romans 12 2 tells us is that do not be conformed to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so the example is this let's picture that there's someone who um is an alcoholic and and Alcohol has had such a grip on his life. And he's someone who every day after he'd finished work, he knows he ought to go home to his family, but he knows that as he leaves the, his uh, place of employment, he turns right, and he knows that the bar is just right down the street from him there. And he knows that when I turn right, I'm inevitably going to end up going to the bar. I'll just stop by. Maybe I'll say hi to a few friends who are there, or, you know, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just stop by. And he wastes the night away in drunkenness, and then he eventually gets home, and the cycle continues. The next day, he thinks, I'm going to be different today. He turns right, but inevitably, there's that bar on the right-hand side of the road, and he just has followed this pathway so many times that he just gives in and says, well, I guess I just can't control this addiction. I can't control this temptation because I've always said yes, and I always will say yes, so I may as well turn right and continue down that path. But what would happen what would happen in his life if instead of turning right and just hoping that he won't look at the bar, won't turn into the bar, won't see the bar, what would happen is he leaves that parking lot and he turns left. It's a whole new pathway. 
It's a whole new way of thinking. It's a whole new way of going home. It might take a little bit longer in the sense that the drive might be longer, but he's spending so many hours at the bar anyways, he may as well make this choice that gets him away from his place of temptation. That for all of us, our brains are wired to, once we've made a choice, it makes it easier to make again. And that can go for good things, but it can also go for awful things. Well, I've given in this temptation again. I may as well just do it. And what Dr. Carolyn Leaf and what we're talking about here is that we can change the pathways. We don't have to keep turning one direction. We can turn the other. And in so doing, form new pathways, neural pathways that would change our lives and change how we live. Here's Priscilla Shire quoting Dr. Carolyn Leaf or referring to her. It says, according to Dr. Leaf, when we control our thought life, New neural connections and pathways are visibly and measurably formed in the brain, which affects the health and wellness of our physical bodies. In other words, when we, quote, take our thoughts captive, we are quite literally renewing and restoring our minds from a state of unhealthiness and deterioration to a state of wholeness and strength in God. Remember, salvation is being rescued from death and restored to wholeness and health and life. Number three, we'll go through this quickly. The reframe principle. Reframe your mind, restore your perspective. A beautiful example of this in scripture is when the story of Joseph, who has been sold into slavery by his brothers, had gone into prison after being falsely accused, rotted away and forgotten in prison for years, eventually goes in to see Pharaoh because someone who actually remembered him after all this time, he goes and he tells Pharaoh, he tells him what the dream is and what it means, is put in charge of Egypt's storage in order to make sure that through uh, these years of plenty, that there'd be enough for the years of famine, and he gets to be elevated to second in command under Pharaoh. And then his, he goes, and his brothers and his father and his extended family goes and has a place in Goshen to live in the Egypt, Egyptian area because that Joseph had revealed who he was to his brothers and had welcomed them in. And at the end of the story, we see that Jacob, their dad, dies. And the brothers are afraid that because jo- that Joseph was just nice to the brothers because Jacob was there. And the fear was now that dad is gone, our brother's going to take revenge. And so they go and they say, did you know that Jacob told us to ask you to show us kindness still? Did jo- Jacob say that? He very well could have. It's also possible that the brothers were just afraid and wanted to put words in Jacob's mouth to ensure their protection. Regardless of that, Verse 20 of Genesis 50, Joseph says this. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. The saving of many lives. He reframed being betrayed, sold into slavery, thrown into prison, being forgotten. He reframed all the ugliness in his life, all the pain, betrayal, and heartache. And he said, I could focus on pain and betrayal and heartache, or I could reframe it and say, what God would use for good, what you as my enemy to his brothers have used for, wanted for evil. It's reframing it and it changes his perspective, not from what I'm experiencing right now to how is God working in the big picture. Lastly, the rejoice principle. Revive your soul, reclaim your life. This reminds me of Philippians chapter four when it talks about how rejoice in the Lord always, I say it again, rejoice talks about how to bring all of our prayers and requests with thanksgiving and the peace that surpasses all understanding would be given to us in Christ Jesus. Then he says to 
to, to focus on or to, to fix our thoughts upon what is, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever is praiseworthy, whatever is uh, uh, all these beautiful things. He says, think about those things. Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Not because everything in our life is good, because no matter what's going in our life, God is good. So here's what Priscilla Shire says. She says it this way. Your identity is your weaponry. Ephesians 1 tells us who we are in Christ with sonship and forgiveness and redemption and chosenness and knowledge and unity. It shows us who we are. She says your identity is your weaponry. Putting on the armor of your salvation is akin to knowing who you are in Christ, fortifying your thinking with it, renewing your mind, and living in a way that is congruent with it. When you do this, you break the enemy's stronghold and also tap into the power to deflect future attacks. Now, the beauty of this is it's, when we think about this gift, it's, it can be overwhelming, but it can be hard for us to grasp sometimes what all this means. So I want to give you a short video. Um, it's, a, it's a minute and a half. I played it a couple years ago. Um, but this is a video when Steph and I were surprising our girls on Christmas morning with a gift that they had wanted for quite a long time, and we were told them that it was coming. So let's go ahead and put the video on the screen, and we'll watch this together. Put this down. Just look behind you. Oh. <laughs> All right, so now let's show you. So I want you to sit back to back, and you girls have to close your eyes, and then when, you're, when both of you have finished wrapping, unwrapping it, then we'll open our eyes, okay? okay. So ready? Go ahead and close your eyes and start unwrapping. All right. Shay, so flip it. Don't your keep your eyes closed, but flip yours over. Shay, Shay. And then, there you go, get like that. All right, so ready? On the count of three, we're gonna open your eyes, okay? One, two, <laughs> three. Open your eyes. What does it say? So what does that mean? It means that we're getting a dog. We're getting a dog. Wait, <laughs> we're getting a dog. <laughs> we're getting a dog. All right. So. Go look behind the pillow in the family, in the living room. And bring, bring up, just, there's not a dog back there, not right now. <laughs> okay, that pillow right there, go look behind so it'll, it. I'll show you what kind of dog we're getting. We're getting golden dogs! <laughs> I love this picture. A couple things. One, I love that Shaylin was so excited. Like, okay, like, didn't even know what was going to happen. I love that uh, she worked it out on her own and was like, it means we're getting a dog. For the record, I just want you all to be aware. I do know how to count to three when that big pause with number two. I was trying to make sure the video was go or the picture was ready. Um, and then I love that like when Shaylin's bouncing around, like Elise looks up to her, is like, okay. And then they just start bouncing together. Then they go around and they look and they're so excited and they're jumping up. And we had to cut the video right there because one of them was so loud that the other one started crying because it was just too much. But look at this picture. Look at this picture of when they figure out or when they find out that they're getting a dog. And the beauty of Christmas morning, and, and we may, maybe you've had a moment where you remember either giving a great gift or receiving a great gift on Christmas, and just how exciting and how, just what amazing feeling that was. Priscilla Shire closes with this, or we'll close with this, rather. This incredible list from Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 10. 
list of what your salvation benefits package entails is just one quick sampling from one chapter, from one book of the Bible, from one small corner of God's blessing barn, poured out like a thousand Christmas mornings. Every morning, every time you wake up to the partly cloudy forecast of a new day. When you're in a cloudy season in life, we can remember that all the blessings we've received are like that joy from Christmas morning, infinitely greater. That we remember what we've, give, what we've been given is far greater than a new dog. It's, it's a new life in God. And it's remembering that there's this beautiful reminder that who you are, if you've given your life to Jesus, you are no longer just a sinner who's far from God. You've been rescued from death, salvation tells us, but it also means that you are now being restored to new life. I want to close, and instead of, uh, I'm going to ask you all to close your eyes, and I'm going to pray reading Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23 over you. It's a beautiful prayer that Paul uses to end this section of Scripture, and here's what he says. So let's pray. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So Father, we thank you for this time. And Lord, I pray that we would be able to recognize the incomparably great power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is living in us when we follow you, Jesus. And the Holy Spirit has been sealed in our lives to become, help us become more like you. That we have riches that go far beyond money. And then remember that our eyes will be open to the love that you have for us. So Lord, I pray that no matter what we are going through this morning, that you would speak and that you would move in our lives now and throughout this week, that we'd be able to evaluate what strongholds have we built up? What lies have we allowed to stick to us and grow? And how, how can we potentially re replace lies? How can we renew our minds? How can we refresh our, our perspective? And then how can we rejoice in who you are? Lord, we thank you for who you for this time we have together. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We want to be a church where people are changed by God to change the world. If you want to partner with us in this way, you can start by doing these two things. The first, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can do that by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening so you can stay connected with us and we can broaden our reach. And the second, and this might be the most important thing you do, share this message with someone you know. And as always, remember you are prayed for, cared for, and loved. See you next time.